0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June the 15th. Actually, it's not June the 15th. It's June. Um, it's June the 18th in California, <laughs> Californian time. And as always today someone has died. I guess everyone always dies sometime, but uh, today we are and if we're celebrating death or bemoaning death or celebrating the life of a very distinguished American journalist Janet Malcolm who died today according to the New York Times which seems to know this kind of thing. She is not only a provocative journalist but she has a piercing eye. She she lived a long life, 86 years, so I guess we should be Celebrating that. Um, according to one critic, you should never eat in front of Janet Malcolm or show her your apartment or cut tomatoes while she watches uh, because she'll cut you to pieces. And she has a very famous quote. Um, as one of America's most distinguished, influential, and indeed controversial journalists, she wrote Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Um, we have today on the show one of America's leading journalists and indeed defender of an independent, quote-unquote, objective journalism. I'm not sure if he even believes in those terms. He has a new book out, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of uh, Truth. His name is Jonathan uh, Rauch. Uh, Jonathan, did I... Um, did I mispronounce your name? Did I no, do a journalism boo-boo and call you Roush rather than Rorsch? Roush is just fine. Uh, Jonathan, what do you think of Malcolm's words? She's obviously a controversial journalist. I don't want to turn this conversation into a conversation about Malcolm herself. But do you think really good journalism, journalists, as she suggested, knows that their trade, their business, their life is morally indefensible?
1: No. I think that's complete rubbish. It's the sort of thing that New York intellectuals say to sound witty. But the journalists that I know and respect take their profession very seriously, work very hard to be accurate, to try to get it right, to double check sources, to correct their mistakes. And that's anything but a fraud. That's the foundation of what I call the Constitution of Knowledge.
0: Well, we'll come on to the Constitution of Knowledge later. And let me defend Janet since she's not here to defend herself. Um, I'm not sure she meant it necessarily critically. Um, the notion of moral indefensibility is a very sort of American concept. Uh, You could be a good journalist and not necessarily be morally defensible, can't you? Or do you associate the collection of truth, what you call the constitution of knowledge, with morality?
1: I do, in the sense that you really can't do it if you believe that there's no substantive difference between truth and bullshit or between truth and lies. The whole framework that we have for developing knowledge, and that includes journalism, but also science and law and government requires making and taking seriously some distinctions between better and worse ideas and better and worse arguments and evidence and reason. All those other enlightenment values and although you know you can make a name for yourself and get rich and be provocative and witty by saying none of those things matter at the end of the day if you're not practicing them you're not doing good journalism or good research and you're not really much valued to anybody except as a poet or a wit uh
0: jonathan you begin your book with uh, and i'm quoting you here a homely snub-nosed bulgy-eyed old man who of course everybody knows of Socrates. Wasn't he a bit of a wit? Wasn't he the kind of guy that perhaps irritates you? He wasn't a journalist in Athenian times, but perhaps today if he reappeared, he would be like Janet Malcolm and be a troublemaker in the town square.
1: You know, I think you're probably right, Andrew, come to mention it. The uh, the reason I use Socrates in the beginning isn't that, you know, he's the founder of modern science, because because he wasn't. That's a much more recent phenomenon, or for that matter, the founder of modern journalism, but because he understood that knowledge comes out of a conversation. It comes out of curiosity and asking questions and not being too sure that you're right. And yes, sometimes being annoying. But the most important words of the dialogue that I start my book with are the last, which is, let us meet here and continue the conversation tomorrow. That knowledge is an unending process. And that's a pretty radical idea, actually, but it is the foundation of, of modern science and modern journalism and much, much more.
0: I'm curious, uh, Jonathan, that you you, you you use modern science and modern journalism in the same sentence. Are they the same thing? Is journalism a scientific endeavor?
1: They're all part of what I call the reality-based community, with apologies to Karl Rove, who came up with it first. But although they're different branches, yeah, I argue that they're all part of the same big enterprise, which is to figure out what's true and to do that in a way that involves impersonal rules and checking with other people. And doing that in a way where no one person or organization or viewpoint is in a position to dictate to all the others. So you can't be an authoritarian, which means in science, you're going to have to run an experiment or make arguments that work for people halfway around the world. In journalism, if your story is true, someone else with a very different point of view has to be able to check it and confirm it, and then maybe pick it up or maybe debunk it. Uh, the same is true, actually, in, in the other two big pillars of the reality-based community. Those are law and, the, and, and also government. The same process or versions of it go on in places like the FBI, the CIA, statistical agencies, uh, law courts. You can look at what happened to Donald Trump when he tried to bring dozens of completely meritless, frivolous allegations about the election into court. They said, where are your facts? They didn't have any.
0: Jonathan, are you suggesting a a kind of whiggish or even teleological version of history in which we are edging as we talk to one another in this Socratic manner, closer and closer to the truth?
1: Um, Hmm. It's an interesting question. I would say I am urging a liberal view of history in which what we're talking about are social systems and processes that maximize freedom, but also maximize knowledge and social cooperation and allow us to cooperate across vast numbers of people and doing things like, you know, creating the vaccine that's protecting me against coronavirus right now. And yeah, I, I do think that objective knowledge exists. It's real. A foreign, uh, an alien civilization could come to our planet long after we're extinct and reconstitute our databases and decode our libraries and put that knowledge to work. And that knowledge does improve. And I give you the coronavirus vaccine in my arm, developed in less than a year, designed in about a week. These are all capacities the human species didn't have, you know, a decade ago. So yeah, I do think we come closer. But of course, you know, we never finish. That's the that's well, the core that's, of a liberal enterprise. Uh, yeah.
0: And and you, you quote the whole pantheon of, of Western political thinkers, mostly men, white men, of course, because there weren't perhaps any others. But you quote Mill, who uh, I think you're quite close to in some ways, and certainly your your, your constitution of knowledge is, is million in that sense. Um, you call the constitution of knowledge the strangest, best idea ever. Uh, define it for me. You call it liberalism's epistemic operating system borrowing perhaps some language from Silicon Valley here Hmm.
1: yeah I'm a bit of a magpie in this way every society small or large whether it's a small tribe or you know a mighty multinational organization or or nation needs some kind of epistemic regime which just means a way to determine what's true and what's false for public purposes and human beings are okay Coming up with right answers when we get immediate feedback like is that the breeze in the bushes or is that a tiger? We're very bad at that when it comes to big abstract questions like which God to worship or where the rain comes from and throughout most of history the way we've solved this problem was rely on princes or priests or oracles or sacred texts or Politburos or dictators to tell us what to believe and that's a disastrous system usually results in civil war and death and ignorance Well, about three hundred years ago, some people come along and say, "Why don't we try something very different? Let's create a social network." wasn't called that at the time, but let's subject everybody to checking. Anyone can float a hypothesis. We all might be wrong all of the time, but the more evidence you can, the more people you can persuade, and organizations you can persuade, the closer this is to knowledge. And if it passes enough of these tests, it'll wind up in the textbooks and it'll be it'll be taught, and you'll be a hero. That's the constitution of knowledge. But it's a lot of, it's not just million because it's not just individuals talking to each other. In fact, it's mostly not that. It's mediated through institutions like this show, for example, like journals, professional societies, uh, law enforcement agencies, newsrooms, uh, academic organizations. And they do the work of sifting and comparing all these ideas, deciding which ones are worth passing on to other nodes in the network. And it's what comes out of that. It's our knowledge, and the constitution of knowledge is the set of rules that basically say, look, if you want to make knowledge, you're going to have to persuade other people, just as in the US constitution. If you want to make laws, you're going to have to compromise with other people. You may not like it, but that's the only way to do it. And that's how we get this huge international system of cooperation that builds knowledge. Sorry, that was long-winded, but it's well, a big concept. I
0: was very good, Jonathan. Um, you have a section at the end of the book where you call the constitution of Wikipedia. I'm not sure how much you like Wikipedia but in a sense, the system you seem to be describing is uh, an analog Wikipedia in the real world uh, without anonymity, a transparent Wikipedia, an analog uh, version offline. Is that fair?
1: I'm not quite understanding your point. Uh, The point I make about Wikipedia is that if it's, first of all, two thumbs up for Wikipedia, I rely on it. It's a fantastic organization and it's one of the few platforms per se, on social media that that really came out right. You know, it's fantastic when you think about it, it and completely.
0: It's, uh, it's, um, I'm not sure if it's fair, though. I mean, it leads with you in terms of your writing and beliefs. It says you're uh, the first sentence, a critic of U.S. government public policy in general, and specifically in its relations to homosexuals. Hmm. Is, that, is, is that a fair summary of, of your life and your work?
1: No, probably not. You know, one issue about Wikipedia is the same with science. In a very small entry like me that not a lot of people look at, there won't be a lot of eyeballs on it, so it might not get corrected. Uh, I haven't looked at it recently. I, You know, I corrected my Wikipedia page once a long time ago. But the point about Wikipedia is it actually replicates a lot of science and journalism. It's not unstructured at all. You get people who develop track records and they get actually promoted in the system. You have lots of eyeballs on every page. There's only one page per subject, so you can't have fractured realities the way you have in the rest of the internet, You know where everybody's down their own rabbit hole. They all have to work on the same page. That's called the unity of the sciences, when when epistemologists talk about it. So Wikipedia is a good example of how you can make this process that we're talking about, yeah, no, structured and I, and I negotiation to, work.
0: Yeah, my, my question wasn't critical. I mean, I, I think that there is mm-hmm. a, sort of a Wikipedian element to your thinking, let's go back yeah, to the concept sure. of knowledge. Um, as I said, you call it liberal. You call it liberalism's epistemic operating system. And in your narrative, you go through the Western tradition from Montaigne to Locke. You, you talk about Hobbes, although I'm not sure he's really part of the tradition. Rousseau, Mill, uh, the Americans, Madison, etc. Is the constitution of knowledge in this defense of truth is it indistinguishable from liberalism? political liberalism, the birth of Western democracy. Are they the same things?
1: No, but they're related because they're founded on similar principles. They come out of the same period. And some of the people who founded them knew each other. But what they have in common is that they all delegate decision-making about big social questions. What's true? Where do resources go? And who makes laws? It Delegates those to these big impersonal systems where people and institutions are forced to negotiate with each other in order to get things done where no one's in charge where they're open ended and rules based and they seek to be impersonal um, and so all of those are all of those are liberal in that sense now of course they do different things politics is a different sphere from knowledge but they overlap because politics doesn't work if you don't have some base of knowledge and you know that's what what Donald Trump and MAGA have been busy demonstrating to our consternation over here in the in the US
0: Talk to me a little bit about uh, your own life. Uh, you you quoted at the beginning of the book, In my own way as a young man, I set out on Theotetus' journey. Theotetus, of course, being Socrates' um, partner in, in the conversation. After college, I became a journalist and as such dedicated myself to finding out what is true and to telling stories which enlighten and instruct. Good journalism, like philosophy and like science, begins with curiosity, with wonder there's an element of belonging there do you mm. feel that this is your way of entering or has been your way of, of entering uh, society um to, and, and you say um later as a young journalist i was being rebuilt reshaped into a worker's ant in humanity's hive mind humans most important and beneficent creation which is of course the constitution of knowledge is this where you belong, Jonathan, as a journalist, as a truth digger?
1: Andrew, that is such a perceptive question. No one's ever asked it before, and it it, it cuts very deep. Uh, yes, the answer is is yes. I, as a summer intern when I was twenty one years old, I experimented with journalism, and right away I knew that it was for me. I just, I just knew that I was too shallow to do any one thing for the rest of my life and being a specialist. I knew that I loved finding stuff out. I knew that that writing myself out of the story, not being the center of attention was much more comfortable than, than writing about me. So I was very happy sort of being a pair of eyes with a notepad. And yeah, I became strongly professionally identified with, with journalism. As a journalist recently, you know, I've been at the think tank, Brookings, for a a long time and although I still identify as a journalist someone recently introduced me as a former journalist and I just winced because I still am and I still believe very deeply that good journalism is fundamentally a truth seeking enterprise it's flawed you know we never get all the way there but we try
0: you dedicate the book Jonathan uh, the constitution of knowledge a defense of truth to your father Oscar C. Roche in Loving Memory, and then you have this inscription, right if you get work. And I was curious, what exactly does that mean, and how is it connected <laughs> with your father?
1: Well, it has nothing particularly to do with the Constitution of Knowledge. It was my father's favorite saying. He was born in 1929 and came of age in the golden era of radio comedians, and there was a comedy team. I'll forget their name just now. Bob and Ray. And one of their catchphrases was "Right if you get work." And so my father was—you know—some of us say hello and goodbye. He would say, "Right if you get work."
0: Well, it was a nice—I uh, hadn't heard that one before. Now, so far, Jonathan, the conversation has been very optimistic. We've talked about the constitution of knowledge, as if nothing is undermining this constitution. But of course, there is—there are many things. Uh, we all know the images of Donald Trump. This is the front page of the Guardian today sycophants and fantasists, the inner circle egging on Trump and fueling his big lie. Your book, in fairness, isn't just against the right. It's also against the the intolerance or the, I don't know what word you would use of the left. What's gone wrong with the constitution of knowledge? Is someone tearing it up? Are they burning it? Has it been ignored, Jonathan?
1: Well, someone always has the system that we're talking about has always been controversial and it's always gotten in the way of priests and princes and dictators and other people who would like to go straight from what they believe to writing that in the textbooks and making everyone else believe it so it's always had enemies you know right back to galileo and the church the enemies today i argue are coming well, right primarily. back to
0: socrates right i mean it goes way yeah. further back than galilean who right, put, who, right. as you say in your book in the intro. You know, he had this conversation the night before he was put to death by the state for saying things that other people didn't want to hear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right back to the beginning. This will always be a very controversial system and it will always be a burdensome system for the people in it. I mean, think of all the things that you have to do to become, you know, a biologist or a lawyer or a doctor or or a journalist for that matter. There's so a lot of specialization you need to understand, a lot of obstacles. It's just way more fun to you know, sit around and believe what you want to believe and go down internet rabbit holes. And, um, and it's also if you're a political opportunist and you want to dominate the information environment and chill your opponents and, and take shortcuts, well, then you want to wage war on the Constitution of Knowledge. And there are two big ways of doing that right now. My book covers both in great detail. The first is disinformation, and that's what Trump and his troll armies and MAGA have been up to, and that's pouring out such a flood of conspiracy theories and, and falsehoods, uh, sometimes half-truths. that People can't keep up. They can't even refute it. They become confused and disoriented and demoralized, and they begin to believe the election was a fraud. It's very useful if you're a populist demagogue. The other major type is what's now called canceling, a, a word that didn't actually exist when I started the book. Uh, but I adopted it. And that's the use of social coercion. Typically, this one's more common on the left. And that's where, you know, if, um, uh, if if Jonathan or Andrew says something that someone objects to, they marshal social media, but also lots of other social connections. And in order to uh, to try to ostracize them, get them fired from their job, cost them their friends, make sure that Google blackens their reputation by calling them a homophobe or, or whatever it may be. And that's also a way of, of Chilling, intimidating, isolating, demoralizing the opposition. Uh, and these are both attacks on the way we're supposed to do things in the constitution of knowledge, which is you punish the idea, not the argument, and you don't pour out a stream of falsehoods for political advantage. That's the last thing you would do.
0: You say in the book, Jonathan, that a lot of the intellectual foundations of, 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 of the constitution of knowledge are borrowed from your previous book, Kindly Inquisitors. Um, What did you say in Kindly Inquisitors, uh, and what are you adding to Kindly Inquisitors uh, in the Constitution of Knowledge?
1: Kindly Inquisitors, published I think now 28 years ago, sets out what I call liberal science in that book. Now I call it reality-based community, but, but same thing. And that's the notion that we have a liberal system for making knowledge that's analogous to markets and economics and democracy, Republican democracy. In, uh, in politics. And that's this big decentralized network that we use to make knowledge. So then I went away for 28 years and didn't think much about it. I also wrote in that book about the attackers 20 years, 28 years ago. And and then I realized when when Trump came along, and uh, Gamergate, and anti-vaxxers, and cancellation, when all of that stuff welled up, I realized I'd left out maybe the most important part. And The Kindly Inquisitors was like writing a book in praise of transportation and saying, we have these great things called cars, everyone get in your cars, we'll be free, we'll have transportation, we'll be productive, that'll be great. Um, I left out the fact that you need roads and traffic signals and rules and driver's ed and laws, all the stuff that goes on that allows the organization of those cars into a transportation network It doesn't work with all that stuff. And that stuff, you mentioned Mill. Mill didn't get this. Charles Sanders Peirce did, but, but Mill didn't get freedom is not enough. It's too disorganized. You don't get a structured comparison of ideas. You need all of these institutions we've been talking about, like newsrooms and referee journals, who take the ideas, acquire them, say, okay, let's break this into packets. Let's figure out who can critique them, what their value is, should we transmit them, You need all of that stuff in the middle, and that's the stuff that's under attack right now. Those are the institutions that Donald Trump is going after when he says it's all fake news, don't trust anyone but me. When he falsifies a weather report, he's saying don't trust the Weather Bureau. That's what he's going after, all that stuff, the important stuff in the middle.
0: Uh, the end of the book, you 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 talk of you have a chapter called the disinformation disinformation technology, the challenge of digital media, and, and then that challenge, of course, hangs over many books. Uh, earlier this week, uh, I know you, I'm sure you know George Packer. Your your and his book were just actually reviewed together in the New York Times. Uh, George said to me that he thought people, and he says in the book, that people should give up Twitter and Facebook, and, and then uh, the next day I interviewed another. Writer George uh, Zarkadakis, a a Greek, uh, an Anglo Greek uh, entrepreneur and writer who's written a book called Cyber Republic, which sees reinvention of democracy in terms of Web 3.0. You talk a little bit about Web 3.0, it's a a generic term. I'm not sure anyone really knows what it means. It hasn't become like Web 2.0, a universal term yet. Is jonathan digital media the problem or the fix or probably both
1: probably both right now it's the problem um and the problem is that the architecture of these systems were designed to monetize capturing eyeballs not to monetize finding truth and those are two very different propositions because if you want to capture eyeballs then of course you want to be outrageous to attract attention or you want to slur people to create uh, to create outrage or you want to spread fake stuff that's really attractive and fun and very cheap to produce so the incentives were wrong and it's no surprise therefore that studies find falsehood spreads faster than truth online There's, the internet turns out to be digital architecture actively hostile to truth puts it at an actual disadvantage so the incentives are all backwards The Constitution of Knowledge is all about incentivizing the true stuff by rewarding people who find stuff that's true. You know, you get a journalism prize, you get cited, your stories get picked up, lots of, it's a very different incentive structure. So Web 3.0 is so, okay, people are not going to give up Facebook and Twitter, even if you think they should. Can we, can they, redesign these systems in ways that are friendly to truth instead of hostile to truth? And that's what a lot of great minds are working on. And it's, it's really hard. Right, because the system was not which, which
0: minds, uh, which great minds in particular are you thinking about?
1: Well, Tristan Harris at the Center for Institute Center for Humane Technology, um, Facebook. I think the Oversight Board is a very interesting initiative. A lot of people are very cynical about that. You know about this, right? The, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the so-called Facebook. Some have called it Supreme Court. So in the past, this isn't the first of these big epistemic, you know, that is information disruptions. The printing press was a big one. The invention of the penny press and offset printing in the 19th century, hugely disruptive. And in the past, the way these things were worked out, it took some time, but you built sort of institutions and guardrails that, that changed the incentives so that people would behave in, in more responsible ways, in more pro-social ways, so that, you know, Facebook and Twitter would not be a sewer of abuse. You kind of change the rules and incentives. That's how modern journalism came into being. In the early 19th and 20th century, some people had enough of yellow journalism, fake news, extreme partisanship, and all the other stuff that made American journalism such a swamp. In the 19th century, they founded the American Society of Newspaper Editors, which, Generated some ethics codes, some guidelines for journalists. They opened journalism schools, which taught those codes. These are things like run a correction, be accurate. We take them for granted today. Uh, they established prizes like the Pulitzer's. They professionalized newsrooms. And it took a couple of decades, but this did shift the incentives in ways that were good for the audience and good for business. So the question is can Facebook and these other platforms do something like that? And the oversight board is their first attempt. Now it'll take a while. And I'm not saying. A win is, is, is in the cards. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm not always optimistic. But that is the right direction to go. Can you begin to rewire some of these platforms and incentives so that they'll favor better behavior over worse behavior? We don't know yet, Andrew, but that's, I think that's where the effort's got to go.
0: Well, um, Packer talked about reinventing civic education. He's certainly not the first or the last person to do that. Coming back to your point about as a young journalist becoming part of the hive, do we need to make the denizens of the internet feel as if they're part of a hive? Because isn't that part of the problem? You talk about tribal identities and the way in which tr- tribal epistemology doesn't open people's minds up to other truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, tribes sort of go both ways, don't they? And, and the hive goes both ways.
1: Wow, that is another extremely astute question, um, and not something I've thought about. So I'll take a stab at it, but this may be kind of lame. I'd like to hear your answer to that question, actually. My I answer- ask
0: the questions, Jonathan. I don't
1: answer them. I, 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 otherwise I'd need to be paid twice. <laughs> well, I'm gonna take a stab at it, um, and it's this. So the big problem with liberalism, liberal institutions, which we've been talking about. These are these these rule-based impersonal usually global open-ended systems. You know like economies where everything's always changing and you're trading with people all over the world and like politics where you're supposed to compromise with, you know, people you've never met before and and everyone gets a vote but no one really knows who decides. Um, uh, and like knowledge, like knowledge making, making, where you're, so you're you're putting yourself at the mercy of this huge network of scientists, for example, who are telling you how human beings evolved, and that's not in the Bible. Why should I believe that? These all require huge, huge amounts of trust. You have to trust rules, and trust strangers, and trust negotiations. And they're also kind of you know they don't give us necessarily that strong sense of community. We can all say you know I believe in the Constitution, but that's not like you know going to church. On a Sunday or a synagogue on a Saturday, and, and being part of, of my group. So, so what we try to do in the constitution of knowledge is create a sense of community. What you talked about earlier, I, I had a sense I was joining a community, a tribe, when I became a journalist. You know, this is important. We serve our communities. We have certain values, but that's just not always enough. And frankly, in the liberal world, we're not—we're just not always good enough at it. At making people feel like they're really part of something, like they're really connected. You know, we talk as if freedom and autonomy solves the whole problem. And, and by implication, I, I think you're right. Uh, I'm not the first to say it, but, but modern liberalism it's, it's kind of thin, you know, we, we have these cravings for community and tribe that it, it just doesn't really always meet. And I think that's bubbling up in politics right now.
0: Well, Fantastic I, 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 question. I think, oh, well, thank you. Well, uh, I'm sure you say that to everybody. Um, Actually, I, I don't I enjoyed the constitution of knowledge, a defence of truth, Jonathan. But going back to this sense of identity, I enjoyed it because I know all the people you introduced: the Mills, the montaigne's the the John Stewart, uh, the you know the Locks, the Hobbes, the rousseau's You didn't Charles Sanders Peirce.
1: Bet you didn't know him. I didn't. Not many well, people I, do. I didn't
0: know his work, but it, that was interesting. But some people, and I'm not saying everyone, but when it comes to the creation of community, do you think your constitution of knowledge contributes to that? Do you think uh, a young black woman, for example, who picks up your book? There are no black women in your book. There are no women, really. There are certainly, I think you mentioned Frederick Douglass, but very little on slavery, very little on the crimes of Western civilization. Um, Do you think that the book itself contributes or can contribute to a sense of community outside highly well-educated white men like you and I?
1: Well, two questions bundled there. One is, does it speak to diverse groups, these ideas? And does it serve the needs of diverse groups? And then another is, can it create a sense of community? I don't think the constitution of knowledge is enough to create a sense of community. That's also going to come from these other social institutions that have been so badly damaged, like churches and unions, I'm a big union supporter, and we've seen the, the social yeah, consequences M- of Michael letting this go. Michael Lynn has been
0: on the show, and his sort yeah. of top-million analysis, and a lot of people have, have, have echoed Lynn's yeah. concerns about the destruction yeah. of these intermediary institutions.
1: So, so there's that side, which, which we need. But then there's the question of, does this book and do these ideas speak to minorities? And I'd answer that with my own life. I I'm not, obviously, a young African-American woman. I'm not anyone but who I am, but I am a homosexual American born in 1960 at a time when people like me were, were reviled. We were a stench in God's nostrils, according to uh, to the religion of the time. We were not allowed to work in the government in any capacity until 1975 when I was 15, or for a security clearance until 1995, we were hounded on the streets We were told that we were sick by psychiatry we were ostracized we were closeted we were twisted and the thought of ever marrying someone that we loved was you know it was ludicrous it was laughable well i am 61 11 years ago i was married in the district of columbia to a man that marriage is now universally uh, recognized in law in the united states and Uh, we've we've about reached the point where even a majority of Republicans and evangelicals support same-sex marriage and that happened because of the Constitution of Knowledge that happened because we were able to make our case and show our arguments and we were able to shred the other side's arguments we were able to show that they were based on fear and ignorance that we were going to support marriage and that we were we're not a threat to society um, yeah, it saved us. This this is a system for anyone in any minority who has truth on their side and needs to prevail against an angry or ignorant majority.
0: I like that phrase, truth on their side, Jonathan. Uh, I was familiar with your, I hadn't read your political work, but I was familiar with your book, The Happiness Curve, which I really enjoyed about why life gets better after 50. It seems as if the society we live in now, everyone is a bit miserable. Do you think the constitution of knowledge, if we can get this stuff right, will it cheer people up too? Will it make us happier?
1: <laughs> well, that's also a good question. Um, yes and no. Yes. In the sense that everyone is happier when our institutions work better, when they earn more of our trust, we do have some work to do in the reality based community in academia and in journalism. Uh, we we we've, we've got some work to do to restore and earn back some of the trust that we've lost. That means recommitting to viewpoint diversity, not just ethnic and, and social diversity. It uh, means making conservatives feel comfortable in newsrooms and in academia because there just aren't enough of those perspectives. But yeah, in a high-trust society where institutions that make knowledge are, are trustworthy and reliable, people are happier. But the broader question, kind of no. That's not up to us in the Constitution of Knowledge. That means rebuilding all of these these connections in society that have wasted away, um, that that give people a sense of belonging. That you know, the the worker who's who's been working for years at an auto factory and now is working for half or a third the pay as a greeter at, at Walmart and still seeking some dignity and and not even getting very much of that. That's not something the Constitution of Knowledge is going to address. That's going to be addressed when we start rebuilding the many ways, the many pathways to human dignity. That aren't just a paycheck and don't just come from a cash subsidy. And, and, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there. A lot of work to be done there, restoring dignity and connection.
0: But I'm pleased to say that even though Janet Malcolm died today, one of America's most uh, provocative journalists who had a piercing eye, we still have defenders of truth, uh, and one of them, I think, one of the most uh, articulate, from judging from this interview, is Jonathan Rauch, A uh, uh, constitution of knowledge, a defence of truth, really a, a spirited book and, and a spirited interview too, John, Jonathan. Sometimes uh, authors and, and interviews don't—you uh, know—they they write good books, but they don't make very good interviewees. You, you've done both, um, so congratulations. Well, you've done on both, that. frankly.
1: You've asked well, them remarkably. The
0: I've asked the questions, but uh, very briefly, where are you at the moment, Jonathan?
1: I'm in the Northern Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. Okay,
0: well, we're still in these late days of, um, of COVID where we're not sure whether we're going to go out or not. Your book, A Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of a Truth, is a must read. Uh, what else should people be reading uh, to make themselves part, perhaps, of our constitution of knowledge? I know that you're a big admirer of Jonathan Haidt. Um, Do you think people should read his book too?
1: His book, John Haidt's books are essential. There's a wonderful book that's foundational for me that came out a year or two ago by Yuval Levin, and it's called A Time to Build. And it's about exactly what we've been talking about, how we can start to rebuild all of these institutions and these these intermediaries like unions and, and churches and all the ways that we can plug in to feel valuable to ourselves and other people. And then read George Packer's book, which I just started, and it's marvelous.
0: Well, it certainly is marvellous. The Last Best Hope, George Packer's book. Your book is marvellous too, uh, Jonathan Rush. You are marvellous. We're all marvellous. and um, We're so marvellous, we'll have you back on the show again to talk more about freedom, journalism, truth, and all these other subjects. Thank you so much. Keep well and keep in touch, Jonathan.
1: Thank you.